That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what happens when the so-called experts get it wrong. This Friday, April 26, marks the 27th anniversary of the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl at Pripyat, Ukraine, in the former Soviet Union. To mark the event, Nuclear Hot Seat has three very special interviews. Russian scientist Alexei Yablokov, who is one of the authors of Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, as well as an expert on nuclear security and co-founder of Greenpeace Russia. Dr. Janet Sherman, who among her many credits is an editor of Dr. Yablokov's book, and a Bulgarian woman who lived through Chernobyl and provides a powerful eyewitness report on the impact of that disaster on her country and her personal life. That's three Chernobyl interviews coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 23, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. A big win in Los Angeles in the battle to keep the San Onofre nuclear reactors shut down. The Los Angeles City Council has just joined the growing list of local, state, and federal elected officials in calling for an adjudicated license amendment hearing process by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission before Southern California Edison is allowed to restart its defective nuclear reactors at San Onofre. The Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously today to ask federal regulators not to allow the restart of the crippled San Onofre nuclear reactors before the formal public process that will determine whether Edison's experimental restart plan is safe and all needed repairs or replacements are completed. The resolution, which passed 11 to 0, expresses support for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission to make no decision about restarting either San Onofre unit until it has fully reviewed public safety through a prudent, transparent, and precautionary process has allowed independent experts and the public ample opportunity to comment, and has confirmed that Southern California Edison has completed any resulting mandated repairs, replacements, or other actions necessary to guarantee both short- and long-term safety operation of San Onofre. The city also encourages the NRC to take the time needed to independently determine whether or not the information, analysis, and actions provided by Southern California Edison constitute a solid technical basis for the adequate protection of the public and resumption of operations. In other words, find out whether those guys are lying. Edison has proposed to the NRC that it be allowed to restart Reactor Unit 2 at 70% power and run it as a five-month test, ooh, what fun, followed by two years of intermittent Shutdowns and startups and shutdowns and startups and shutdowns and startups. The best thing for any kind of an engine. Not. Edison has also requested a license amendment with a, quote, no significant hazard, end quote, provision that would allow restart with a public hearing to be held only after the fact. NRC staff have given preliminary approval to Edison's request, but are taking public comments on the proposal through May 15. Here's my public comment on the issue. Fuck! According to S. David Freeman, former head of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and a senior consultant to Friends of the Earth, 
There is a growing consensus from cities in the Southland that Edison's restart plan amounts to a dangerous experiment that gambles with the safety of millions of Southern Californians. There are serious questions about what went wrong at San Onofre, whether it can be fixed, and whether it is safe to operate. These questions can only be answered adequately in a formal legal proceeding. Yay, Los Angeles. Woohoo! Happy dance. Now here's another piece of good news out of Florida. The Florida House Energy and Utility Committee has passed a bill that will end the future development of nuclear power plants in Florida. It prevents utility companies from charging customers for the development of nuclear plants before they obtain a license and precludes any new power plants from being eligible to collect the nuclear fees. Since 2006, Progress Energy has charged customers in Florida more than $1 billion to expand the now-shut-down Crystal River nuclear power plant and to start developing a new nuclear power plant in Levy County. However, Progress Energy does not have a permit for the Levy County project, but has kept $150 million of the money that it collected in profits. Now the question is, what will it take for them to refund that money? Don't hold breath, but still, here's another happy dance. Woohoo! Going back to more usual nuclear information, there was a truly unusual, unusual event declared with the NRC for the LaSalle Generating Station located about 75 miles southwest of Chicago. On April 16, the plant was hit with lightning which knocked out off-site power to both Units 1 and 2. Both units automatically shut down from full power to no power, which is a scram, and two Unit 2 primary containment vent and purge valves were opened to vent the Unit 2 containment. There is a question as to how much radiation was released into the environment by this maneuver and why it was necessary. We're going to have a much more thorough report on this in next week's Nuclear Hot Seat, But let's just say that, according to at least one source, we almost lost Chicago. More info next week. In Vernon, Vermont, the Shut It Down Affinity Group, one of my favorite groups in the country, were arrested on Thursday, April 18, for blocking the driveway at Entergy's Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant. It was the fourth day in a row that the Shut It Downers were evicted from the power plant driveway. The women, all over 60 years old, quoted ex-chair of the United States Regulatory Commission, Gregory Yasko, who said recently, quote, All 104 nuclear power reactors now in operation in the United States have a safety problem that cannot be fixed. Kudos and hats off to Ellen Graves, Hattie Nessel, and Francis Crow. Nuclear numbnuts! Okay, Numbnuts of the Week Award for Nuclear Boneheadedness. I'm indebted to Arnie Gunderson, as we all are, uh, with Fairwinds Energy Education, who came up with this one. He said, The average U.S. nuclear power plant has six guys on eBay trying to buy old parts. The reason for this is that if they put a new part in and it isn't a like-for-like replacement, They have to go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and ask permission. So they literally have a staff at every nuclear power plant of people scouring eBay looking for old parts, old nuclear reactor parts, dig it, so they can put those old parts in their warehouses. When one of their parts breaks down, they can then replace in kind as opposed to going out and getting something better or newer, which of course begs the question, 
parts for nuclear reactors are sold on eBay? And is it possible that someone could buy enough old parts to assemble a whole one from scratch? And couldn't this be considered, like, a security risk? Numbnuts, indeed. Moving over to England, there was a fire at the Hartlepool power station, nuclear power station, which caused smoke to billow out from the plant on April 21st. However, local police said it was drifting away from homes. The question being, where did it go? If it wasn't over homes, it was over something else. And that's not going to get it away because when it comes to nuclear, there's no such thing as away. In India, the Atomic Energy Regulatory Board, AERB, has just acknowledged with great awkwardness that during testing of thousands of valves installed in the Kudankulam nuclear power plant, the performances of four valves of a particular type were found deficient. In other words, substandard broken equipment was installed in a brand new nuclear power plant. According to the Struggle Committee of the People's Movement Against Nuclear Energy, PMAIN, which has been marvelously active in this area, the AERB has no integrity or credibility and should call off the Kudankulam project completely instead of explaining away the dangerous issues involved in the project and making us all guinea pigs to test the Indian nuclear establishment's corruption, inefficiency, and black market procurement practices. I love the way they mince their words, don't you? There will be a link to the full story, which is much more elaborate, on our website, www.nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. Moving over to Japan. Here, Corium. Here, Corium. Where did that Corium get to? Good article by Eric Clemetti in Wired. He wrote, regarding Corium, the melted core fuel rods from the reactors at Fukushima Daiichi, TEPCO claims that the corium did not breach the outer wall of the containment vessel. But researchers at the Argonne National Laboratories in Illinois have created corium in the laboratory and found that corium lava can melt upwards of 12 inches of concrete in a single hour. A meltdown of corium lava will rapidly dissolve its way through the inner containment vessels or more in a matter of hours unless it can be cooled again. Results from these experiments suggest that cooling with water may not be sufficient to stop corium from melting the concrete. In addition, long after the flow has stopped, that lava will be highly radioactive for decades to centuries. More from TEPCO. 600 tons of contaminated water are missing from the reservoir of radioactive water that TEPCO's been holding. Now, what they say is that it's an error of the measurement hardware. In other words, ah, there really wasn't 600 tons of contaminated water in the first place. Their version of the dog ate it. GG Press reports that after discovering radioactive water leaking from the underground storage pits, TEPCO sent 14 workers at Fukushima in to carry out efforts to transport water, but did not give them the appropriate dosimeters, which would have allowed them to measure the exposure received by the workers. What you don't know can hurt you, but if you don't know, you can't sue. Okay, it's time for the interviews this week. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine in the Soviet Union was the site of a catastrophic nuclear accident on April 26, 1986. The worst the world had seen up to that point, 
and eclipsed only by Fukushima Daiichi. An explosion and fire released massive quantities of radioactive particles into the atmosphere, which then spread over much of the western USSR and Europe. Radioactive particles from Chernobyl still circle the Earth as part of the jet stream, where it continues to be brought to Earth by rain and snow. To create a picture of what happened at Chernobyl and its meaning to us today, I conducted three interviews. First, Bonnie Kuneve, who was a 16-year-old living in Sofia, Bulgaria, about 800 miles away from Chernobyl when the accident began in 1986. When Chernobyl happened on April 26th of 1986, where were you living? I was living in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria. Bulgaria is a small country in the Balkan Peninsula, and typically on the maps of the Chernobyl um, fallout, it's uh, covered in gray, like if, if it didn't have any, um, um, it wasn't uh, affected. Unfortunately, the reason for that is because the government never allowed any tests and never any data uh, has been released about the impact, but the impact uh, uh, definitely has been devastating. You were living in Bulgaria. What, if anything, did you learn about Chernobyl when it happened? When it happened, uh, nobody of the ordinary people knew anything about it. It was kept as a deep secret as the communist government at that time felt uh, obligated to be loyal to the Soviet Union powers that be. And, um, of course, Soviet Union couldn't uh, do anything wrong or make any mistake. Therefore, there was nothing going on. And uh, not only we weren't told, but when there was some whispers in the air, uh, the government, Bulgarian gov government officially went on national TV and declared that there's no problem and we can eat uh, spinach and lettuce and drink milk and be outside. And we actually mandatory, we, I was a uh, teenage uh, girl at that time, were forced to march in a, some communist rally on uh, exactly the same day when there was a, a rain that was dragging down the nuclear uh, hot particles and basically the nuclear rain was raining upon us. How soon after it happened did you start hearing the whispers that something was wrong? Basically, besides occasional whisper, nothing really was declared until the fall of the communism in uh, 1989. So it was three, three years. years. and a half, yeah. During that time, were people aware of any changes either in the food or in health or in children? People observed uh, numerous changes. Um, the plants that spring all looked burned and uh, yellow and gray and uh, brown. Uh, some of the um, annual vegetables, especially the most sensitive, um, like spinach and lettuce I mentioned, were also brown and, and um, dead, some of them. Some of them just um, looking strange. Some of the um, lettuces actually grew huge, like three, four size, but uh, uh, times bigger than the usual size. The next uh, a few summers, I actually was working in a farming community, and I heard from local farmers that they have observed strange changes in their baby animals. Every spring, all of them have their uh, baby goats and sheep and cows and horses, and then they had an um, amazingly high number of animals, either stillborn, born with um, uh, organs and um, limbs that are like multiple numbers, like five legs or two heads or just like missing uh, parts, and... Um, 
I actually remember particularly uh, in 1988, I worked a little bit longer. So uh, it happened that my birthday in September was... Uh, I was still working there, and the farmers were so sweet. They wanted to throw a party for me, and they actually uh, killed a baby uh, goat. And that goat had sex organs for female and male. And if that was a novel, that would be foreshadowing of <laughs> the future problems because I heard from a scientist that the different creatures have different um, time of responding to radiation, and uh, uh, more primitive or sim simple organisms uh, mutate faster, obviously. At that time, I heard from a scientist that they expect the peak in the mutations in humans to occur 10 years after Chernobyl, which was exactly when my son was born. But um, apparently that even wasn't the, the most dramatic peak because according to the uh, recent statistics, the problems and the mutations continue even in a worse way uh, year after year. So we really don't know when the peak will be. How were babies affected by this? The babies that were born at that time uh, had uh, bo bone problems, problems, skin problems, uh, respiratory problems. You were talking before, uh, before we did the interview. You mentioned about a child that you knew who was born three days after Chernobyl happened? Yeah, that was my doctor. My son's doctor uh, daughter was born three days after Chernobyl. And even that doctor who was a medical personnel and very intelligent woman wasn't aware of what's going on. So she was exposing her daughter to the sun, which is traditional for the area. Uh, and then her this is part of the health for giving the baby yes, vitamin especially D. Especially that um, uh, no winter time in Bulgaria is dark and cold, so you do need that exposure. Uh, yes, her her daughter's bones were literally melted, and she needed support for the rest of her life. Her uh, bones after. were melted. Yeah, they she they were so soft that they couldn't support her body ever. And she survived? She survived with normal, uh, otherwise intelligent uh, girl, but um, disabled for, for life. Did the government continue to deny that there Absolutely. was anything wrong? Absolutely. The government continued to deny. There was no comment at all. Um, the food wasn't uh, withheld, so people actually were encouraged to eat uh, uh, food that was definitely contaminated. While later on uh, in uh, investigation, it turned out that the government itself had uh, deliveries with charter airplanes from New Zealand, special food for their, them and their families, and their families were in underground shelters. But uh, the ordinary people were actually sent to march on the streets for rallies and get all the exposure that was at that time the strongest at its peak. So, no, there was no officially released any information uh, besides the talk among people and um, lots of jokes. Bulgarians like to joke on political topics. Tell me, uh, some, so, tell me some Chernobyl jokes. Uh, grandson is asking his grandfather, hey, da uh, grandpa, tell me what, uh, what was it in Chernobyl at that time? And the grandfather answers, oh, nothing, nothing much, don't worry about it, and pet his uh, grandson on both of his heads. Yeah, I know it's bad. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh, but it's... <laughs> so, yeah, the grandson got two heads. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, that's the reality for that area. Uh, if you look at any documentary, you can see children with tumors as big as their heads or organs outside of their bodies. And unfortunately, it doesn't get better. If you look at the data for Russia and Ukraine and all these areas that were affected, still it doesn't get better. Still people have all of these problems. Talk to me about what happened with your son. Well, uh, basically, when I turned uh, 24, I got pregnant. My 
husband at that time was also a mountaineer and uh, outdoor man, and he was exposed to the uh, Chernobyl radiation even in a closer proximity to the explosion. And I was marching in that communist rally <laughs> that was mandatory, unfortunately. You couldn't sneak out unless you wanted to get in a serious trouble. I was uh, young and healthy. I have no history of genetic uh, diseases in our family. Same with my uh, ex-husband. But um, our son was born uh, and immediately diagnosed with Down syndrome. And uh, the day he was born, uh, there were 42 or three kids in the hospital. Three out of them were Down syndrome kids, which is extremely high ratio of uh, down syndrome for the normal population. Right, the normal percentage is those what? Were, those are all young uh, mothers. Uh, for that uh, age group, the normal uh, I, ratio, I believe, is one in 3,000, something like that. And Bulgaria used to be a clean country and actually was pretty low genetic uh, diseases. At that time, uh, with my son, there were three more babies in the hospital uh, with Down syndrome. Uh, that was a huge tragedy for, for all these uh, people because on the top of it, the country wasn't prepared. There was no such frequency of problems, mental problems or genetic problems. So there was no system of support, uh, no services available for them. And uh, these kids were really, really victims. So what is it that has shown up in your son? Well, uh, he is uh, severely mentally retarded. He has heart defect and uh, other problems that are related to the uh, genetic disease, like weak muscles, weak joints, uh, blood problems, stomach problems. Uh, also, I'm diagnosed uh, diagnosed with thyroid problems, immune problems. Uh, once in a while, tumors here and there, which are pretty benign. But um, all of this, actually, it, uh, according to doctors, is linked to the exposure to radiation because there's no history of any of it uh, in our family. And I'm a pretty healthy person. I also was a uh, mountaineer. So... Uh, all of these problems, actually, uh, according to the uh, medical authorities, are linked to Chernobyl. And actually, my son officially is labeled as environmental case by the governmental workers who actually try to get support for these kids. Even before I was, um, uh, I, I got a son with Down syndrome, I was very dedicated to the environmental movement. And I was very aware that uh, we are not capable of controlling and using safely the nuclear power. So I was actually a fighter against it. We actually did um, protests every every springtime. Every 26th of um, April, we were giving black uh, ribbons to the pedestrians in Sofia, and we were doing protests. And there was actually pretty fun uh, rallies in which everybody was uh, dressed as a mutant. <laughs> so we were having fun with that. <laughs> um, but... Given a chance to tell people one thing, I want to uh, say this. I don't want to leave a message uh, about story about some strange girl with a Slavic accent who had an unpleasant experience with the bad communist, communist government, got screwed, her son got screwed, and then she somehow managed to come to America and uh, get a little bit better help for her and her uh, son. Uh, that's all great, but that's not really what I want to say. The communist governments were evil and they were capable of lying, but they're not the only uh, government uh, capable of lying. I'm afraid that in any situation, powers that be serve their buddies, the people with power and money. And if 
big money is involved in uh, developing uh, nuclear power in any country, the governments will cover for them, and they did cover, as we saw uh, in the case of Fukushima. The information wasn't uh, released. We still don't know what kind of impact that uh, horrible event will have. I really am, I'm, I'm, I feel for the Japanese people, and I know that it has uh, had impact on America too. So since uh, Chernobyl in uh, my country and in the whole area, the um, percentage of genetic diseases, stillborn babies, miscarriages, cancer, tumors, uh, respiratory problems, thyroid problems, uh, bone and blood problems are skyrocketing. It's epidemic. I talked to the director of the biggest, most uh, specialized hospital in Bulgaria who happened to be um, somebody I know. She said that miscarriages and genetic illnesses in Bulgaria are almost like considered like a flu, like something that almost everybody experiences, and this is not normal, and it's not okay, and it's not easy. I myself actually lost a baby uh, a few years ago, and this is a huge, huge uh, tragedy that uh, some people maybe never recover from. And we shouldn't uh, take it lightly. We shouldn't say, oh, that's the price for using nuclear energy. There are other uh, alternative sources of energy. We really don't need to play with that extremely dangerous energy that we really don't know how to how to control and how to store the waste. And it's just really something that we should leave alone. What are your thoughts about what's facing Japan as a result of Fukushima? I'm seriously concerned about the what will happen in five or ten years with the kids who will be born at that time after Fukushima, the kids or the uh, kids from parents who have been in the area or the little ones who already have been exposed. Are they going to develop what kinds of cancers, tumors, um, headaches, bleeding? We really don't know. And... Uh, I feel for them and I worry about them and I don't think that that's how we should treat our future, our kids, if, if, even if we are ready to play Russian roulette or Japanese roulette. <laughs> we should give the chance to our kids to actually have a safe environment and enjoy their lives without having to deal with tumors and cancers and, and fear and pain and, and disabilities. Because even one kid growing with tumor or, in, like in case of my son, intellectual disability and um, heart defects, he has huge impact. Their life is so much tougher and so much opportunities are taken away. It's like a curse upon them. They're, they're really robbed. This is a robbery officially imposed to them and even one kid is too much if we're talking about impact of, of uh, such a negative event what about million kids what about million people I've been told that most of the people who participated in the original cleanup are already gone cleanup of Chernobyl cleanup of Chernobyl what about the cleanup in uh, Fukushima? I know that they s basically sent people who were sent on a suicidal mission people who knew that Basically, that's the end of them, and maybe they will really willing to sacrifice themselves. But why do we need to pay that price? We have alternatives. We have alternative sources of energy. We can learn to use less energy. We can learn to be less of a consumerist. There's options. We don't have to be slaves to the nuclear power and sell ourselves so cheap to such a dangerous business. Bonnie Kuneva. Next, I spoke with Dr. Janet Sherman. 
She is well known for her work with statistician Joseph Mangano on analyses of data after Fukushima that indicated a spike in U.S. infant mortality and hypothyroidism. She also edited the English translation of Alexei Yablokov's groundbreaking book, Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. I caught up with Dr. Sherman in her home in Virginia. A lot of people have saying that we've, uh, when we talk about Chernobyl and Fukushima, that we're, uh, we're scaring people. And I say, but you know, not everything was tested. Domestic and wild animals, fish, birds, trees, plants, fungi, insects, everything were tested. Many, many things were tested. And all of them showed in adverse effects after, Fuku- after uh, Chernobyl. And none of them are sitting on a psychiatrist's couch, you know. So it's not psychological when no. there are mutations in butterflies and animals and there's radiation showing up in the boars and things like that. Yes, that's correct. And um, also uh, my colleague uh, Tim Mousseau has been to Chernobyl about 25 or 30 times and he's been to Fukushima a number of times and they're finding the same changes in the birds and the in- insects and the trees in Fukushima as they are finding in Chernobyl. And they, they too are not sitting on a psychiatrist's couch. So we know that these changes are real and they're persistent. In terms of Chernobyl, what are some of the changes? Certainly there was catastrophic exposure in the early days. But as it has progressed, what has been showing up now that we are, what is it, 27 years now away from right. the anniversary of it having happened? You know, in, in Belarus, one of the biggest concerns is 80% of the children are not considered well. How and would they define not well? Well, of various immunological problems, respiratory problems, um, birth defects, low IQ. And now this is, would be, you know, if some woman was pregnant during Chernobyl, this would be going into the third generation. You know, this is, would be a grandmother, you know, if she was like 25. And now, and now we're talking about probably a third generation that is, that is uh, damaged as a result. of, And in Belarus, which is, you know, having a terrible time. And economically, it's in, in, in tough straits. So the impact genetically was not only on the first generation that got exposed to it, but you're saying that these are permanent mutations that have happened or genetic changes that have happened that are being passed down through the generations in Belarus? Uh, well, n- not only in Belarus, but other places as well. I think somebody did, I can't remember who the the, uh, the researcher was, did 20-some uh, generations of uh, wild voles, V-O-L-E-S, those little creatures that look like a, a mouse, and they found that the genetic changes were uh, permanent throughout all 20 generations. I've wondered... With the genetic impact, if there are 20 generations of voles, they've just changed a little bit. Maybe they've adapted to it. Is such a thing possible, adaptation to the radiation? Well, there are people who think that there is such a thing, but um, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I don't think so. How does the research that's been done on Chernobyl relate to Japan? Is it really a vision of what they are facing as a result of Fukushima? Is it worse in Japan? Is it happening more quickly or more slowly there? Biology, chemistry, and physics are pretty fixed. 
if you look at the periodic table of elements and you know that uh, that strontium-90 is being released and you know it's in the same category as calcium, you know it's going to go to the teeth and bones. If you look at cesium-137, it's in the same fa family as potassium and it goes to all the muscles and the glands. So it's not a surprise that these elements will have an adverse effect on living creatures, whether it's a plant, an animal, or a human. You can't change biology, and we know that it takes a certain period of time for an isotope to dissipate. It takes approximately 10 half-lives. So if you're talking about strontium-90 and cesium-137, they're about 30 years. So it's a half-life. Yeah, a half-life. So you're talking about three centuries, 10 times three, that's three centuries. And these, this is immutable. This is, these are things that you cannot, you simply cannot change. And we know these things, and we've known them since the 40s. This is not new information. To say that, well, we really don't know what's going to happen in Fukushima is somehow or other either wishful thinking or trying to fool the public because once these isotopes are released, there's no getting them back. In terms of the human genetic damage that has been taking place, does it get worse through the generations? Is there any way to recover from it? I doubt it. We do know, for instance, that the children born to the, the men and women who worked as, quote, liquidators, they were the people who cleaned, tried to, you know, were, who were actually conscripted and brought in. There are over 700,000 of them. We know that the children born to these people turned out to be unhealthy. Many uh, simply just died, and there were a high number of uh, miscarriages or abortions just as a result of the, the children were so defective. So is there a way to reverse it? I don't think so. I mean, you can't. Biology is, you know, pretty much progresses along a line, and it's hard to, uh, hard to change it. For those who have survived, at least on the surface, from Chernobyl, does it look like there will be long-term survival? I mean, what we're, what we're facing here, I mean, this is existential, but it's also true that with radiation, with the long life of it, and with its impact, it does seem as though what we're dealing with is the potential of certainly a change in the nature of life on Earth, if not a potential ending for it. Does it look like the people who have been impacted by radiation are going to be able to survive in the long run through the generations? Or are we a piece of biological machinery that's in the process of wearing down to zero? Well, I hate to say it, but I think you're, you're it's correct. It is wearing down. And if you've got people who've got immunological abnormalities and kids who are born with either birth defects or hypothyroidism is, my associate Joe Mangano and I reported last month, these are people who are going to have to be on, the, the hypothyroid babies are going to have to be on thyroid medication the rest of their lives. So if you can't get the medication, you don't have the money, or you don't have the resources, or you don't know that you need it, then it's, it's a disaster. Thinking that we can uh, release amount, large amounts of radiation into the biosphere and escape any harm is foolish. Whether it changes the wheat or the corn or the, the uh, you know, other plants, 
we we don't know, but it may make things much harder to grow, and we may be faced with very serious problems. I mean, what are you going to eat if you're in Japan and you rely on vegetables, which in around the Fukushima area was a very big agricultural area? And if you eat lots of fish and all the fish is contaminated, what are you going to eat? This is, this is very, very serious concern. In terms of exposure to radiation, what is the biggest difference in relation to internal versus external exposure? Oh, that, of course, that is the, the critical one because the nuclear industry keeps saying, well, it's no more than flying across the country in a, in a uh, jet plane. But it's the, the whole issue is the taking into the body uh, isotopes that go to various parts of the body, whether I-131 to the thyroid and cesium to soft tissue, including the breasts, and strontium-90 to the teeth and bones. This is the issue. Once they're in, taken into the body, they release, you know, alpha or beta particles and cause harm. Is there any way that we know of to remove radiation from the body once it has been taken in, either ingested or breathed in or come in through a cut or a wound? The only research that I know of was done after Chernobyl where they used apple pectin to decrease the levels of cesium-137. Now, whether they're doing this in Fukushima or not, I don't know. But it did seem to lower the levels of cesium-137. And getting children away from the milieu where they're eating contaminated food on a daily basis seems to help. Children were taken to the United States and other countries and seemed to improve uh, when they were away for you know, six weeks or two months. They used a gamma measuring chair so that kids could sit in and measure the levels of gamma radiation that was mostly coming from the cesium. And they found that the kids' levels did decrease. But what do you do when you go back and you start eating the local food again? Is there any way known to remove the radiation from the food or from the water? Well, I understand that Japan has been trying to remove radiation from the water and then storing the water. And where they're putting the radiation they removed, I have no idea. But it turns out they're trying to store the water in plastic-lined pools. And, of course, we know that that's not going to work very well. And it's now running out into the ocean. And we're finding that even fish off the fish and clams and seaweed off the coast of um, North America are contaminated. Yeah, Southern California is where I live, and we've been hit hard here, though they keep trying to make it invisible. We're even going through a spike right now, according to Michael Collins of Enviral Reporter. What, to your way of thinking, is the best way to protect ourselves? I think the, the only way to protect ourselves is we have to close these nuclear power plants. We've had, you know, the, the meltdown of Chernobyl, then of Fukushima, which is still really, it hasn't stopped. It's still releasing enormous amounts of radiation. Uh, it was about four days after Fukushima happened when Alexei Yablokov, the senior author of the book Chernobyl, came to the United States and stayed with me for five days. And he said, quote, Fukushima is much worse than Chernobyl and because, you know, the country is small. The population is very concentrated. The Fukushima area was a major agricultural area, and there's no place to escape. Now, Ukraine was big 
and it wasn't a major, you know, it was a big grain growing area, but it wasn't a, a, small farms. He was here just before the Caldecott conference, and he said, there's going to be another meltdown. I said, where? He said, well, I don't know where, but there ha- just statistically speaking, just by chance, yes, there's going to be another meltdown. Now, there's about 400 reactors in the world and 100 in the United States. We don't know which one is going to go down, but just because of the age of these and the fact that accidents happen, it's going to be another one. And what are we going to do then? Well, we have close calls just about every week based on the reports that are coming in. And we keep ducking the bullet, but they're coming thick and fast, and there's no telling when that next one will land. You're absolutely correct. How did you come to work with Alexei Yablokov on the book, on this cornerstone book on Chernobyl? Well, it's like everything in my life. It was by accident. Uh, it's, uh, it must be about 15 years ago. A friend of mine had heard Alexei speak in New York, and he said, Janet, You've got, to, you've got to meet this man. You've got to hear him speak because he's going to be in Washington next week. So I went to hear him speak, and it was stunning. I mean, he was, was so interesting, and I went up and introduced myself and talked to him. And we got to, to visiting, and then we kept in touch. And I think it was in '08 he came here and brought me the Chernobyl book in Russian, which, of course, I can't read Russian. And he said, we need to get this into English, and I kind of naively said, well, I can edit it. And I figured it would take me, you know, four or five months. Well, it took 14 months. And he said, we have no money. And I said, well, that's okay. You know, I'm retired and my husband has died, so I've got time to do something like this. So I did it. And that's how I happened to be the the editor, just by chance. And how has that book impacted the world? What is the importance of it to researchers, to medical personnel, to governments out there? There was, you know, an enormous criticism of the book by the nuclear industry as soon as it came out. Of course. Yeah, but it it encompasses over 5,000 articles written by researchers from all over the world. And it's the first time that literature that was published by people in Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine has been translated and available to English-speaking people. But there's articles in there from Greece and Israel and Germany, uh, Italy, Sweden, everywhere. I think the big thing is that it encompasses what has happened to so many species, not just humans, but so many species. You can't ignore the fact that this is worldwide, uh, although concentrated more in Europe, than it is in the United States or Canada. Now, here's a question that I've had for a long time, and that is that it seems that cancer used to be a relatively rare disease, but that since approximately the mid-40s, and if we think 1945 from Trinity through Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those were the first atmospheric releases of nuclear radiation and the radionuclides. Since that time through the years, it seems that cancer has first been slowly growing in its rate and now exploding exponentially to the point where 41% of us are expected to get cancer in our lives. 
while it may seem to my naive and non-scientific eyes that there is a direct correlation, as a doctor, as somebody who is experienced in this, what for you is the correlation between the increase in radionuclides and the ever-expanding rate of cancer in the world? I think there's a direct relationship. We know that cancer is not randomly distributed in any population, none. And we, a great deal of research has been done showing uh, increase in cancer in proximity to, to, the, to nuclear power plants. A number of very good articles have been re- reported from Germany about children and leukemia in proximity to nuclear power plants in Germany. We also know that Busby's work shows an increase in cancer around the plants in the uh, British Isles. My colleague Joe Mangano did a study of thyroid cancer in the United States. And men, women, blacks and whites, the highest cancer rate for thyroid cancer in the United States, guess where? You tell me. Eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, downwind from Three Mile Island. Oh, my God. And southern uh, New Jersey. I mean, this is not... This is not uh, data that we generated. This is governmental data. And the study that we just released on hypothyroidism in newborns in the United States is based on governmental data. We are using state and federal data. The federal government is doing nothing. The Congress, as we know, is probably never going to do anything. So, you know, we we have people wringing their hands, dealing with sick family members, you know, and we don't. We know some, We don't know everything that causes cancer, but we know a number of them. We could do something about, and we do nothing about it. Let's shift over to the study you recently did about hypothyroidism that has been showing up in births on the west coast of the United States. How did mm-hmm. you come to do that particular study? Well, we we were just curious as to what has been the effect of of uh, Fukushima. Well, one of the things that's documented, practically every state, I think everyone in the United States, is required to test newborns for a number of diseases that can be, if they're treated immediately, can you know improve the lives of the kids. And one of the things that the states require is to test for thyroid function in newborns. So Joe Mangano, I think he, of the 50 states, I think he was ever to get data, I think he got data from about 45 of them. And we found that, it, you know, again, it's not random. And it was higher in West Coast and, of course, in higher elevations because you have more fallout at higher elevations. That's the same for pesticides. You have more fallout in higher elevations and colder elevations than you do in warmer. Just because so, it's, closer, it's closer to what comes down from the jet stream? Yeah, it's higher. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's higher in elevation, but also coldness uh, encourages precipitation. You know, we started looking at this and thought, wow, this is impressive. And, of course, that was one of the things that occurred at, at uh, the, the Marshall Islands. This is some of the work that was done by Rosalie Bertel, where there was terrible hypothyroidism and actual cretinism in children born on the Marshall Islands after the uh, atomic tests. Can anything be done for these children other than keeping them on thyroid medication for their entire lives? That works. I mean, you've got to replace the thyroid. 
it's like if you've got a child with you know with insulin dependent diabetes or a person with insulin dependent diabetes you have to take insulin but it works as long as the medication continues to be available and affordable and and can be accessed in a timely manner so that the supply doesn't run out if a child who is dependent in this way is suddenly deprived of the medication what happens then then they become hypothyroided and they become sick and they you know don't do well is it fatal well if it goes on long enough yes you know this is stunning information i mean we're killing ourselves Right. I look at Japan and I say, this is a country that is committing genocide against its own children. It is destroying its own future to save the face of the nuclear industry, which doesn't deserve to have one. Exactly. I agree. So if you had a message that you wanted to get out, I mean, your information is superb. You've been doing this for years. If you had a key message to put out, what would that be? would be, say, to mobilize every neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's useless right now, I think, to start petitioning Congress or the president or anything like that. I would say in your neighborhood, mobilize your neighborhood to close any nuclear power plant that's within 200 miles of where you live and get them closed down. And even when they're closed down, there's, there's problems because you have fuel pools with these uh, spent, quote, spent rods, which unless they're kept underwater, are going to catch fire and release massive quantities of radiation. Now, you've got, you know, such a mess in California with San Onofre that, you know, this needs to be closed down. But unless people speak up and march in the streets and scream and holler, I don't think anything will happen. How did we get the vote for women? We marched in the streets. How did we get... You know, civil rights, we marched in the streets. And how did we get the Vietnam War stopped? The only way is to get the citizenry involved. And most people are just passive and are not doing anything. Either that or they're so overwhelmed by the details of daily life that they don't have any extra energy to put to this invisible, though ultimately life-threatening, power source that is out there. You're absolutely right, particularly if you're taking care of a family member with cancer. Or a child with, you know, with cancer, you're, you know, you're overwhelmed. And sometimes I just want to curl up in a ball, suck my thumb, and weep. Because yeah. I, I don't have any children, and that's the decision I made after Three Mile Island. But for the children who are out there, what kind of a future are we creating for them? What kind of a future do we have on the planet? And who are these people who think that by this short-term greedy, irresponsible behavior, they're going to have a future line as well. What makes them think that they're immune to the consequences? You're right. You're absolutely, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I really don't understand how people can, can do this. You know, there's the Hippocratic Oath that, that physicians take, and I took it years ago, first do no harm. And I think this, you know, if this were given to people who were managing in, uh, the uh, nuclear plants and the whole industry... Maybe they think differently about it. I don't know. But when you see such widespread damage worldwide, I don't know how we can, as, as a human species, continue to, you know, to even use nuclear power. We don't need it. 
it prevent it only provides about 20% of our power if you fly across this country and you see all the flat roofs that you could put solar on and then you could you get you don't have to deal with long term with long distance uh, distribution lines you can put it on the roof of a Walmart or a, a Safeway or any kind of a store feed the power right down into the building or wind which is now you know becoming very useful I don't see why we have to you have to have a nuclear except that it supports an enormous industry and there's a tremendous amount of money there in that industry and also it supports the military industrial complex because it provides the raw material for the bombs exactly every nuclear why are we exercised about Iraq building a nuclear power plant or North Korea having one well because every nuclear power plant can produce the fuel to make a bomb ah we are in such a mess I know. That's why I'm saying people, if people want to do something, mobilize your neighborhood. Just mobilize people and say, we've got to stop this madness. Dr. Janet Sherman. Finally, I was honored to be able to interview Dr. Alexei Yavlikov at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Dr. Yavlikov has a rather thick accent but I encourage you to listen closely to the brief interview that I had with him. Tell us briefly what you shared with the audience about what Chernobyl has to tell us about Fukushima. Both Chernobyl and Fukushima became more clear. Uh, show us, if we count the consequences for public health, it looked like the existing norm and regulation official normal regulation, not enough to protect people from uh, negative consequences of irradiation. It's a big question why. I try to explain, it. we have a lot of explanation why, because it's impossible to, 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 to catch all radionuclide. It's impossible to precisely estimate ir- irradiation during first days, first hours, first weeks, when level of irradiation 100,000 million times less than it will be. But as a result, as a result of this, all of these difficulties, the existing norm, the existing safety regulation, it's not safety, it's not, it, not enough safety. This is the main lesson from Chernobyl, and the same, we, we, we have absolutely the same situation in uh, Fukushima. Also, maybe interesting, it's impossible to, believe, to, to, to trust official declaration. Official declaration and industry representative, they, they, their, logic, their logic to diminish the, the logic, the natural logic, to diminish any consequences. So, what is what we have to be answer for normal people, for society? We have no right, have no right, to believe official declaration. I have no right to believe, to trust industry. It means what what consequences for society? It means that we need to create independent system for check radiation, independent because we have now 
a lot of nuclear power plant all over the globe. It means that every country, every society which uh, situated around the nuclear power plant have to have some possibility for independent measurement level of radiation. Japanese experience in Fukushima show that it's possible. It was impossible in Soviet time in, in, in Chernobyl because it's too secrecy, no money, so KGB, local KGB follows every people who, who measurement. But in Fukushima, society, Japanese society showed that it's quite possible to organize independent from state, independent from industry system for for, for, for monitoring of radiation. It's a key problem, maybe key problem for safety life even in the United States. Because, look, what German, two years ago, some German uh, scientist friend of mine show that every, every uh, even normal working nuclear power plant in some part of year released much more radionuclide than its average report average. Average is, the, uh, average is very dangerous. Average is the average temperature for hospital. It not protect pers- person, not protect individual. We need monitoring every day because, for example, if every nuclear power plant uh, takes spent nuclear fuel and put and th- during this operation normal release from nuclear enormous, enormous but when, we, when it's average for a year. Nothing dangerous, but it will be dangerous for people who happen just now, just in this, in this place, when this operation released. So we need some independent monitoring. It's also a lesson from Chernobyl, lesson from Fukushima. That was three separate looks at Chernobyl, what it has to teach us about Fukushima, and what we all face. My thanks to Dr. Alexei Yablokov, Dr. Janet Sherman, and Bonnie Kuneve for so generously sharing their expertise and time. We've had enough thoughts today. You don't need a final one. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 23, 2013. Material for this week's show came from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary, Friends of the Earth, San Clemente Green, Miami Herald, Plotter Blog, the Shut It Down Affinity Group, Hooya! Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie Gunderson, Dr. Helen Caldicott and Physicians for Social Responsibility, Chronicle Live, Dianukes.org, The People's Movement Against Nuclear Energy, Reuters, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Wired and Eric Clemetti, Informable.com and Lucas Hickson, Japan Times, the BBC, and the Wise Guys and Wise Gals of the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Rock and roll, people. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is completely volunteer, so if you want to support us, Donate, please. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, click the Donate button. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us and support us as the resource we are. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications, all rights reserved, but permission to reuse granted as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. <laughs>